Amen. Please remain standing and hear the words of our God. I'll be reading now from Psalm 60. A bunch of words you just sang, huh? What was that all about? Well, by God's grace, as we work through the passage, I hope to show you what the Lord has for us. Please hear the word of God. Oh God, you have cast us off. You have broken us down. You have been displeased. Oh, restore us again. You have made the earth tremble. You have broken it. Heal its branches, for it is shaking. You have shown your people hard things. You have made us drink the wine of confusion. You have given a banner to those who fear you, that it may be displayed because of the truth, Selah, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and hear me. God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine, and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet for my head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom I will cast my shoe. Philistia, shout in triumph because of me. Who will bring me to the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies? Give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. Through God we will do valiantly. For it is he who shall dread down our enemies. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Lord, let your word dwell in us richly. Let us learn to sing your psalms. Embrace them as ours, your churches, the voice of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so graciously bless the preaching of your word now through your servant. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. So we end the the series of psalms that I'll be going through, these latest 10 psalms. Uh, Since Psalm 52, we have been hearing David crying out from deliverance in his trials and troubles. Many of those psalms directing us to specific passages, um, specific troubles and trials that we, we were able to see. This psalm takes place with Israel facing disaster at the hand of God and ends with promises of her victory over her enemies by the hand of God. So he's, David is going to pray. It's going to be a little bit different prayer. Rather than crying out for mercy, he's identifying immediately where the trouble is coming from. You know where the trouble is coming from? The trouble is coming from God. The trouble is coming from God. But he also knows that the the deliverance and the only deliverance that he, his people, his nation, his culture are going to to be able to find victory in is by the hand of God. It's going to be the hand of God that delivers them. And the change from the beginning to the end of this psalm takes place in the middle with the promises of God declared, believed, and then acted upon. And so for us, for our people... For our time, the promises of God, we'll see, are like a banner held high in battle. We'll talk about that. What does it mean? What, when, who holds a banner? And when, does it, when is a banner used? The banner says, Jesus is Lord here. Faith then, faith, the, the belief, is, is belief in, in God's gift to trust his faithfulness to his promises. Again, we've talked about this before. Faith is not just having um, faith in something or some propositions, but Christian faith is trust in the almighty, omniscient, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God who has spoken and believing that what he has said, he will do. That's what faith is. Faith is believing in the faithfulness of God, placing your trust in him. And then our actions are the working out 
of that faith, the working out of what God is working in, because he promises to work in us. So the psalm begins with an honest confession of the state of things. And it's an honest confession that goes down to the fundamentals. Not just that there are problems out here, but God, you are our problem. You are our problem, God. He says, just to begin with, in verse, uh, in verse 1, he says, Oh God, you have cast us off. And the, and the word there is this idea of having thrown that which is detestable away from you. You've, you've chucked us. You, you've, you've thrown us away. You're just like, it, we're like garbage to you. You've cast us off, you've broken us down, you've been displeased, oh, restore us again, he says. So, what's going on here? Well, the inscription tells us, the inscription beforehand tells us that the psalm is written during the many battles David encountered after he took the throne. All of the other psalms that we were looking at in in the 60s were all those struggles that were going on with David while he was running from Saul, while he was seeking refuge in all these different places. This is after he has taken the throne, and, 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 and it, it, as soon as he's taken the throne, he's, he's in the midst of all kinds of battles, all, all over the, the nation. All kinds of enemies are coming at him. And, and this happens, and you can read about it in 2 Samuel 8, also in 1 Chronicles 18, and then another mention that takes place in 1 Kings 11, which is interesting, that mentions the fact that Joab is down in the Valley of Salt, one of the battles that take place, and he's there battling for six months. You get that in two verses. Uh, and part of the reason that's interesting is because in first Samuel, or Second Samuel 8, you have, kind of, you have these stories of all these different cities and lands that David takes control of and wins. You can read that chapter in about a minute and a half. What, you don't, what we forget is all of the battles, all of the difficulties that he would have encountered during that time. Not to mention just the fact that this is what he inherited. This is what David gets when he, when, he succeeds, when he succeeds Saul to the kingdom. When he succeeds Saul and is crowned, he finds himself in, a, in, the, in just a disastrous battle. He comes to a divided throne. You remember that you might recall Ishbosheth, one of Saul's son, sons, is also crowned king of Israel. And so immediately there's a battle. Who's got the crown? Who's, who's really in charge here? So we have that going on. And then Philistia was on the, on the rise. Philistia was, um, uh, was ascending in its power, and they were the ones actually that killed Saul in battle. David had many battles to fight, both within the people of Israel. So there's a civil war going on um, amongst all these different people. Some are siding with Ishbosheth. Some don't want to follow David. And there's all kinds of battles going on. And then we have battles coming from the outside enemies, from Philistia, from Moab, from Edom, that are all either pressing in and threatening or bringing battles to bear on David as well. So remember, Saul was killed in the disastrous battle against the Philistines. And, and by the time he's done, Saul has pretty much laid waste, not just his own reign, but the nation. The military, the political elites, the priesthood. Remember, he kills all the priests in that one, at that one time. Um, so he kills all the, 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 the high priests and all these priests that were with him, the whole families of priests. The whole nation was in shambles as Saul is brought to death. And David becomes king. And this is his inheritance. An absolute wreck of a nation. This was his latest promotion. This is what promotions are all about. 
Promotions are all about you accomplishing and solving the trials and troubles so that you can then now be promoted to greater troubles and trials. That's what happens. We don't get away from troubles in this life. We don't, this, this life is not a life where you, you go through a trouble, you prove yourself faithful to God, God says, great, here's a piece of spiritual chocolate, and I'll give you some more tomorrow too. You're all done now. That, that's not what happens. That's not what happens in, in this life. So this was his latest promotion for faithfully handling the previous troubles, shepherding the sheep against a bear and lion, standing before a giant, fleeing from Saul, you think, you think the Lord would just say, you're doing great. Why don't you just have a rest here? No, he throws him headlong into all kinds of battles because David has been faithful. And so here he is. David knew that he was the possessor of a tottering throne and kingdom. In, in verse 2, it says, you have made the earth tremble. It, it's gone through a deep earthquake. You've broken it. Heal its breaches, he says, for it is shaking. And this word, so a great earthquake has come, has completely broken down this nation. And the nation, if you think of it as a structure, is standing on the breach. It's tottering at the edge of a cliff. It's about to go over. It's pretty much done. That's, that's what he's crying out in, into. And so heal its breaches. You need to build this thing back up quickly, Lord. So he's the possessor of a tottering throne and kingdom. And that displeasure of God, of God is the displeasure of God had brought the calamity. Again, it says, oh God, you have cast us off. You have broken us down. You have been displeased. So the reason this has taken place, he's, he identifies, is not because of Philistia. It's not because of all the civil wars. It's not because of all the enmity. It's because God is displeased with us. Ultimately, that is the reason this has happened. God had brought these hard things, he says in verse 3, and the nation was in a drunken stupor. But notice a couple of things here, first of all. First of all, notice David taking responsibility for this mess as a faithful king. He does not say the previous administration is the reason that we are going through all these troubles. He's been promoted to the office, he takes the office, and he takes responsibility for the place in which he has been given headship. Note this, husbands and fathers. Note this. When you are the head, you don't get to point your finger at the problems, the real problems that are around you of those that you're in charge of. When we do so, we are being faithless to our calling. When a king, a ruler, a person who comes into a position of some kind of headship, he must take responsibility for all the troubles, even though others may have caused the troubles. That's what it means to be a king. That's what it means to be a head. It is to assume, gladly assume, responsibility for that which called has, God has called you to. Sacrificial responsibility for that which as God has called you to. So David takes responsibility. He comes before God as, and, and says, you have cast us off. You have done these things to us. I am the leader of these people, and this is what you have done to us. Second, Notice that David also traces the hard providence of, to the hand of God. He's not afraid to say that all of these terrible things that have come upon us are from the hand of God. If calamity befalls a city, Amos says, is it not from God? This is, this is from the Lord. And so the state of a nation, the state of a culture, the state of a people, the state of a family is from the hand of God. 
And, and we oftentimes want to say, well, that makes God look awfully mean and awfully, uh, like, is, like, is he the author of evil? No, he's not the author of evil. We brought the evil on. We brought the evil on, and yet he ordained it. And why that is, why, the, the, the only reason that that is such a glorious truth is because if he is the one who brought the trouble, he is the one who can take care of the trouble. If he's not the one who brought on the trouble, then why would we expect he can do anything about it? If he is not sovereignly in control from beginning to end, why would we be able to think that he can insert himself at some point and all of a sudden take over sovereignly? God is sovereignly in control from beginning to end of everything that takes place in the life of God's people, in the life of nations, in the life of, of, of all nations at all times. So David traces the hard providences to the hand of God. So what does he do? What does he do as king, as head? What does he do knowing that God is, is sovereignly in control of this mess? He sings. He writes another psalm. And he prays to God. And he asks him, God, restore us again. Take us back to where we were. Take us back to being a faithful nation before you. Heal its breaches. We are tottering, and I can point out to you where things are about to fall, crack and fall down. Heal these breaches, Lord. They need to be, they need to be raised up now. That's the way he prays. That's the way he sings. So, man is full of troubles as the sparks fly upward, Job says. A trouble-free life doesn't really exist. Not here, not in this place. Times of, times of rest, times of refreshment, times of reward do come, but ultimately, more troubles come. When you're in fourth grade, kids, and you finally are able to learn everything that needs to be done in fourth grade, and you thought it was pretty hard, well, then you finish, you graduate, and you're promoted to fifth grade, where the problems are harder. And after fifth grade, you're going to be promoted again to sixth grade, where the problems are harder. Over the years, I've taught piano lessons to a, a number of different kids, and one of the things I will do is uh, they're, they're learning a, a hard song, and almost always will come to a song, and they'll say, I can't do this. I'll never be able to do this. And I'll say, mark, the, mark that down. Let's write that down. That's what you said. And then we work through the song, and we work through it, and then finally, they are able to do it, and they can do it, play it confidently. And then I say, that's great. Look, you can play that confidently. Turn the page. They turn the page, and they go, oh, my goodness. I'll never be able to do this one. And I'll say, look at what you said beforehand. When you learn to arrive at solving troubles and solving problems, it's always one of the things it is, is preparation for your greater promotion, to faithfully be given more difficult problems more issues to take care of. That's the way God sanctifies us. That, which mean, that's, and that's part of the reason why James would say to give thanks in, in all various trials. God is preparing you for a promotion. God is preparing you for perfection, for maturity. That's why he's given you the particular troubles, the particular problems, the particular hard songs, the particular point and time in history that you find yourself, that we find ourselves as a culture, as a church in right now, God planned for us to be in the trouble that we find ourselves in right now. And what did David do? He sang. He wrote poetry. He pleaded with God. We should learn from him. And so he, he, we have this honest confession about the nation's sin, but then it follows with an honest confession about God, about his Savior in verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5. 
You have given a banner to those who fear you that it may be displayed because of the truth. Selah. Wait, hang on for a moment. That your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and hear me. So the psalm is already taking a turn as David begins to cry out. He's honest about the nation's sin, but he's also honest about his Savior. It says that he fears God. He says, you have given a banner to those who fear you. I believe David knows that he is this banner. He's going to be carrying this banner um, as the leader. He is going to be, and, and, and he's giving it to those who fear you. David fears God, and in context, particularly, this fear comes not from knowing the trouble they are in, but back to verses 1 through 3, knowing that the trouble has come from the hand of God who is disgusted with the nation, who's spewing it out of his mouth, who's casting it away, who's break, who himself is breaking it down. Um, if, we look at the, if we look at the nation around us, we want to point the fingers and just stop by pointing the fingers at the bad politicians, the bad pol- policies, the bad moral corruptions, all of those things, and they're all true. They're all terrible. But why have we been, why, why have we been even cast into them, let alone that they are here? What is going on? God is sick of us. That's what we need to hear. He is sick of us, and he is casting us off. And if he is going to cast us off, what are we going to do? Well, we plead to the only one who can, who can turn back, turn us back, and we ought to do so with holy fear before God. That's the right kind of fear to have before God. If he doesn't save us, we're done. We're done. That's what David is, is crying out. And so he prays as, as, the, as one who fears God. And those who fear God, then, are the ones who are given a banner to display the truth. Because they are the ones who are able to march into battle carrying nothing but a banner. But they believe what the banner represents, or who the banner is, as it's going to really turn out to be, is the one who is going to truly protect and lead and guide and bring victory. They don't fear men. Banner carriers in the midst of an army go to the front of the line, and they go out first without weapons, carrying the banner of the people who are going to be with them. They fear God, if they do so rightly, and then they do not fear man. The banner of salvation is put in the hands of those who fear God to lead the charge against the enemies of God. Well, also he says here, he says uh, in verse 5, that your beloved may be delivered. Well, David is God's beloved. His name means beloved. His name means beloved of God. And God alone can deliver his beloved. So look at verse 4 and 5 again and hear this. See David in these words. You've given a banner to those who fear you, that it may be displayed because of the truth, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and hear me. So David prays for um, an open, public, displayed work. I think that's what he means when save with your right hand. Make it evident, open-handedly, public, that you are the one who has saved us. All to your glory. Bring this about. He knows that God's brought him into the trouble. And so he's then openly, God, make it clear you're the one who brings us out of this trouble. So it's all to the glory of your name. He prays for an open public displayed work of God's omnipotence and love for his beloved. Well, who is God's beloved? Sure, it's David. And we can see throughout the Old, uh, Old Testament, it's, it is Israel, his beloved. Over and over again, he calls Israel his beloved. And of course, we know of David, of, of the greater David, Um, God's beloved son. Our blood-soaked banner, ours, our blood-soaked banner is the gospel of the greater David. 
our blood-soaked banner is the gospel of the greater David, the son of God who was, be- who was his beloved son. The banner we fly declares Christ's victory over sin and death, a broken world tottering on eternal condemnation because of the previous administration, and our king taking full responsibility for it. Christ did not come and say, there is big problem in sin in this world, and it's all your fault. He comes, and as king, he takes full responsibility. Where does he take full responsibility? On the cross, where our sin is put on him. He didn't sin. He was without sin, and yet he became sinful for us. This is where you learn headship. This is where you learn what it means to be a king. This is where you learn what it means to take responsibility for those under you. This is what it means to imitate Jesus. You take responsibility and you take the hit for those that that you are responsible for. That's exactly what Jesus did. And so he, he, he comes and does so, taking full responsibility for our sin. And that's the banner that flies. The banner must be unfurled and carried into the mess of the battle for the one who has been given it all and yet must press out his reign. David understands and the greater David understands that objectively the victory is done. That God has, God has said and God has taken care of it. He's placed David on the throne. He is king. And then David goes out and, 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 and the world around him, it doesn't look like he's king. He's got people battling him on the right and the left. But he's been declared king. He's been anointed king. And so he goes out and acts like a king. Jesus comes and Jesus announces his kingship, his lordship. He takes responsibility. He dies. He's raised, raised from the dead. And it doesn't really look like he's king here. But he is. Now continue with the psalm. This is the part with all these words that you're like, what were we singing about? Look at carefully. Verse 6, God has spoken in his holiness. So now what David says is as though David's writing the psalm and then the Lord specifically says, insert this. It's a prophetic word from David. God has spoken. And this is what he says. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. And he goes on. The banner is unfurled, and this is what is declared to those who stand in rebellion to the king. To sum up, verses 6 through 8, God says, mine. He says, mine. It's all mine. I get it. He will divide the spoils of Shechem and Succoth. Shechem and Succoth are, are a city and then a valley, an area up in the northern area, near, not too far from the Sea of Galilee. Um, Shechem is the place where Abraham uh, offered one of his first sacrifices and set up an altar when he comes into the land. Succoth is, I believe, where uh, Jacob is, is buried. These are, but these lands up there are not subdued by David. God says they will be. He will divide the spoils of Shechem and Succoth. Gilead and Manasseh can say as, as they will, but God says, you are mine. Not as conqueror or slaves, but as Lord over subjects, a father over rebellious prodigal children. They shall be his people. Ephraim, Ephraim, is, um, Ephraim is such a large tribe in the northern area that when the, king, when the kingdoms are divided... And there are 10 tribes in the north, and they're referred to as Israel, and the southern tribes are referred to as Judah. Well, Israel is oftentimes also called Ephraim. As you're reading through your Old Testament, 
That, don't, get, don't get confused. Ephraim is Israel, is the ten tribes of the north. Ephraim was the largest um, and, and provided a lot of military uh, strength to the combined kingdom during the time, and they've turned against David. They're not, they're not with him in the battle at the time. So, but, this is, but, but God says, they shall be his people. Is, Ephraim, the largest and fiercest of the northern tribes, will be the strength of God. And Judah will write his laws and not their own. From Judah will come the place where law and justice will come. Because Judah will be a place, of course, where Christ comes, where the, the priestly nation will, will be, um, where, where, where the uh, temple will be and all of that. So these, all of these places refer to civil wars. And then he goes further. Then he promises to humble Moab and Edom and Philistia as well. So even here, as, as David is in the midst of the trouble, he's hearing promises. He's hearing promises from God before they take place. God never wanted only the land of Israel. He had promised Abraham and his seed the world. You will inherit the world, he told Abraham, according to Romans 4.13. He told his son, the Messiah, to ask for the nations, and he would give them to him as his inheritance. Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8. He didn't tell Jesus just to ask for the Jews, but to ask for all the nations. He promised that in that day, a banner would stand, and that banner would be a root of Jesse. In Isaiah chapter 10, listen to Isaiah chapter 10. In that day, there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. And then in verse 12 of Isaiah 11 also, he will set up a banner to the nations, and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So Isaiah uses the language from David from this psalm to refer to this banner that is lifted up that draws all the nations to the banner, to gather together um, uh, under this banner, to be subdued under that banner, to be made a part of what that banner stands for. Paul would take that that verse, that promise of the banner. He would take that, that, that idea of the Gentiles seeking him, and he will use it in his missionary letter. Mission, he's, he's raising support for his, his mission work in, in the letter of Romans, and he's writing and saying, the reason I'm going to all the nations is because God says he's taking all the nations. So turn with me to, to Romans chapter 15 for just a moment. So David was seeing this, Isaiah would use the same language to talk about all the nations coming under that banner. And Paul will use the same language. He'll take that verse, he'll allude to that verse, and several other verses that are talking about all the nations. He's arguing for why he is preaching to all the nations. Um, it's not just his, um, uh, that, that he's wanting to do so. He knows the Lord has called him. So in verse 15 of, of Romans 15, I'm sorry, uh, verse 8, now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written Then many verses. For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse, here it is, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall hope. In him the Gentiles shall hope. 
over and over again throughout the Old Testament is clear as can be. God, God never intended to only save Israel or only to be the God of Israel. But through Israel, he would become the God to all nations. He would be bringing the gospel to all nations. He would be subduing all nations. And David is hearing that all the way back in Psalm 60 in the days when his nation is a wreck. His nation is in rebellious shambles right and left. So God didn't promise us the land of Canaan. That was just for a time. The prophets tell us, and the New Testament confirms, that God has expanded that promise for his covenant people and for his son, our Savior, to cover the whole world. The earth shall be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, Isaiah 11. All authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28. And, and Jesus, Jesus said that to a small remnant of disciples. While all around him, those in authority had been the ones who had killed him. And those small, that small band of disciples will all be persecuted. They'll either be put to death or, 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 or sent in exile. They, they, this is, this, there's this small little group of people. Jesus has risen from the dead. Hardly anybody believes it. And Jesus says, ready, set, go. Why? Because Gilead's mine. Because Ephraim's mine. Because Edom's mine. Because Moab's mine. Because Australia's mine. I know you don't know Australia yet, but you're going to find out about it pretty soon. And Russia's mine. And China's mine. And America is mine. They're all mine, Jesus says to this small little band. Go. When it doesn't look like it, go. Because Jesus ascends to the right hand of God. Psalm 110 tells us that he is sitting at God's right hand. Notice that. He's sitting at God's right hand. David talks about the right hand of God, the right hand of God that will bring salvation, that will bring um, a subduing of all nations, that will do openly the work of proclaiming the glory and salvation of God. And we are told that, David, that, that the greater David, Jesus, reigns at God's right hand until all the enemies have been made a footstool, humbled for his shoes. The nations will flow to the mountain of the Lord. Listen to Isaiah 2. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's in the latter days. That's in the last day. That's in that day, that day that the root of Jesse is, is going to spring out. Paul tells us that the root of Jesse sprung up in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his incarnation, in his death, burial, and resurrection, ascension, and now reign. That was the day. That was the day that objectively God said, it's all mine. My son purchased it. That's the day. We're not, we, we, but, but the nations aren't all under his subjection. The nations aren't all subdued. The, the, there's, there's craziness all around us. What are you talking about, preacher? I'm talking about the same situation that David found himself in. He is objectively and actually the king. And God has told him, 
God has told him, the rest of this mess is all mine. I'm taking care of it. Now you go reign. You go take responsibility, but know this. I am going to make sure this happens. That is, we live today in the gospel age of hope, which is why Paul would finish the section in Romans with one more verse. He says this, after having, after having declared that all the Gentiles are his, all the Gentile nations are his, he finishes that passage in Romans 15 with this, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, is, that, is there more in this section, in these, in these verses, 6 through 8, that is more gracious and optimistic for the nations than we read at first glance. Read again, as he says in verses 6 through 8, he says, I, um, I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is the helmet for my head, Judah is my lawgiver, Moab is my washpot, over Edom I will cast my shoe, Philistia shout in triumph because of me. One reading of this can just sound like God is just going around and squishing everybody. That's what God's going to do. He's just going to go around and squish everybody. But what if we understand what the banner is lifted up for and what the banner says and what King David was going to do with all of these people, how they were going to turn to him and the nation was going to be unified? Well, open your, open your canvas again, would you please? And go back to Psalm 113. I'm sorry, number 113, Psalm 60. I want you to see now what you read because these are words by a poet from the 18th century, Christopher Smart. And I'm just going to pick it up in verse 4. Listen to what he says, what you sang. Mine is all Gilead's balmy realm. Manasseh is my own. Let Ephraim be salvation's helm. And Judah grace the throne. Moab, remember Moab is the washing pot? Moab's a purifying vase. And Edom shall be shod with gospel peace. Philistia's race, rejoice yourselves in God. What if God puts down enemies, purifying them, and making them his friends? What if God would do that with a nation so bent on rebelling against him? He's done it time and time and time again. He's also, let, he's also let nations and empires go into complete ruin. But he is the Lord. And this psalm is teaching us to understand what he's doing ultimately through the reign of, of, of the greater David, the Son of God. And so, verses 9 through 12, Who will bring me to the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not give out our armies? Give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. So he's, David is hearing, it's as though David just heard this amazing promise. You're getting it all. It's all coming back. All the civil wars are going to start. They're gonna, you're going to unify the country. And we're going to take care of all these enemies. And David says, um, I got a couple questions. So David heard the promise of God that David would see this great victory in the hand of God, and David did. But David also fell into great sin. In fact, in, this, in the story, first Sam, or 2 Samuel 8 is followed by 2 Samuel 9 and the great sin with Bathsheba and eventually the dividing of the kingdom. That David was not perfect, but the greater David also is promised total victory and passes that banner on to his followers before the victory is manifest. 
But the victory is complete in principle because God has said so. But David thinks on these promises and considers one of the strongest cities, the most difficult to triumph over. He says, who will bring me to the strong city who will lead me to Edom? Now, if you knew Edom in that day, you knew that the strong city was Petra. Petra was the strong city in Edom, famously inaccessible and virtually impregnable. A two-mile canyon led to where the city was, and it was built into rock with all kinds of mountainous caverns and, and caves for protection. And so it was, it was this place where sometimes in the, in the passages only, it was, it was so narrow that no more than two horses side by side could pass. Um, David says, how are we going to do this? Nobody takes that strong city. Only God, who, cast, who had cast off Israel, could do this. For the help of man would be useless, David de- de- declares in verses 10 and 11. And then he closes. He closes with what he has understood, what God has declared, what he has believed, and what he's going to work out. And he declares, to end this psalm, through God, we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall dread down our enemies. Where are our impossible cities, institutions, cultural centers, or people you know that seem impenetrable? That's wonderful, God, this wonderful message about all all the nations are going to come to you, all all the cities are going to come to you, but look at our city, look at our county, look at our nation, look at this nation and that, look at... Look at this family over there, that family. Look at this, this person who blasphemes you, this person who wants to have nothing. Look at all of the reb- rebellion. What, what can we do? We can't do anything about this. But through our God, he says, David says with faith, we shall do valiantly. Did, didn't you hear what he said? Do you believe what he said? Is he faithful to what he said? Now, will you live accordingly? That's what the psalm is about. That's what this psalm is about. Our nation, our world, our family, your family, nothing, nothing will be saved by the vanity of autonomous man. Nothing. Our culture and our politics look the way they do because we have abandoned God, or rather, because he has cast us off. He has given us over to our unbelief. He's given us over to our blasphemies. He's given us over to our so-called neutral secular humanism. How's that going for you, America? He's given us over to it. Romans 1 says exactly so, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they passed all kinds of laws. They became fools and changed the glory of incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things, gross things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's what he does. He turns us over to the ugly, wicked, perverse, unbelieving, blasphemous things that we hold up if we won't repent. How many times have nations and empires collapsed and done so surprisingly quickly. And yet, what is this psalm teaching? Christ is bringing salvation to the nations. It's it's not a matter of if, but when. It's not a matter of if our nation will be saved or that these people will be saved. It's a matter of when. 
It's not a matter of if all nations will come under the banner of the Lord. It's a matter of when. Because God said they would. And God said he gave them to his son. And God said, you sit here at my right hand until all of them have been made a footstool. All of them have been subdued and humbled. First Corinthians 15 says, it isn't until that time that then Christ returns and the resurrection takes place. The key to when, the key to when is the church picking up the banner of Christ, leading the way in repentance, and running into the fray, into the fray, into the battle, crying out, King Jesus is Lord of all. He is Lord of your institution. He is Lord of your government. He is Lord of your family. He's not asking. He is declaring. His blood has been shed. Come quietly. Come quietly. By the word of God, by the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, our weapons, as we go off into the battle, our weapons are not carnal. They're much better. They are powerful, we are told, for tearing down strongholds and bringing every thought captive. Our weapons are the word and water, bread and wine. And with these, through God, he says, we will do valiantly. For it is he who will tread down our enemies. Makes you want to sing the psalm, doesn't it? Let's pray together. Almighty God, you have cast us off. We are a nation tottering on the edge of insanity and destruction. You've shown us hard things and made us drink the wine of confusion. But you and you only have set up your son at your right hand. Oh, rule over us with that right hand, Lord Jesus. With your saving hand, save us, save our nation. Rise up and scatter your enemies and say to us, to our people, this world, mine. Let your church do valiantly under your strong and gracious hand. For this we ask in the name of our King of kings and Lord of lords, even Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And amen.